Amen. You may be seated. It is a delight to be here with you this morning. Uh, Friday marked the end of a 13-day, almost 2,000-mile gauntlet. Um, And so, honestly, hear me when I say it is a delight to be home. And it is an absolute delight to be in the house of the Lord together with you this morning. This summer, Pastor Nathan and I are blessed with the opportunity to walk through the book of John with you. And in doing so, we're going to be focusing on the seven or eight, depending on which scholar you ask, I am statements. Um, John is very, very interested in answering the question, who is Jesus? And you're going to find that a lot of people have answers to this question about who he is and what he came to do. But we found it to be best to let Jesus tell us who is Jesus. To let him, through his own word, tell us that he is, or as he puts it, I am, and then gives us these statements. This morning we'll be going to, uh, through the first of the I am statements found in John chapter 6, where Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Our hope over the course of this summer is you grow in love of Jesus, that you learn more about our Savior, that you grow in appreciation of the book of John, um, one of the often overlooked Gospels. And we're going to do that this morning, as I mentioned, by going through John chapter 6. But before we do that, let us ask the Lord for His help in understanding His Word. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, What a privilege it is to gather together, to get to sing to you, to pray to you, to give of our offering to you, to confess our sin together and our need of a Savior. We thank you for the opportunity to have your word opened before us and we pray you bless it. Please bless the reading and hearing of your word this morning for your people. Use it to nourish us, to satisfy us, draw us to a deep love of you, and do so for your own glory, because you are God. We ask help during this time to do this very thing. I ask for your help in delivering your message to your people. Give me strength and boldness and the ability to accurately um, say what you would have me to say as your servant. We ask all of these things in your name, for your glory, and by your name. Amen. I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. A portion of the text is found in your insert. I'll be reading the entire section. Um, You would uh, benefit from having it before you. I'll be reading in John chapter 6, starting in verse 22, and I'll actually read through verse 51. This is the word of the Lord from John. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes, comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he place all of these truths upon our hearts and bless its hearing. It was not an accident that about a month ago, when I last was before you, we read the story of the woman at the well, found in John chapter 4. There's actually a lot of similarities between that account and our account today. In that account of the woman at the well... Um, The woman um, asked for life, giving water from Jesus, water that will cause her to thirst no more. She didn't understand at first, but later on it did lead to understanding and her own salvation. Here we have a very similar story being told. Here the Jewish people are asking for bread, for bread that will last forever, for everlasting bread. And They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. But instead of um, going until understanding, these people go into confusion and grumbling. And we need to think about that. We need to think about why that's the case. We need to look and see what's going on here. And to set the stage to help us get a grasp of what is going on, we need to step back for just a moment. We need to ask ourselves, where does this take place in John's account? We need to ask, what has just happened? And if you flip back just one section earlier, you see that two miracles have just occurred. 
First, we have the feeding of the 5,000. This is a situation where people were gathered around Jesus. They came to listen to him teach, and it got about supper time, and the people grew hungry. And Jesus, he uses this to teach the disciples a lesson. He, he sits back and goes, well, what do we do now? And the disciples rightly say, well, we should feed them. And then Jesus says, how do we do that? And they kind of get anxious because they say, we don't have enough money. But we do have this little boy, and he has a dinner, and we can maybe use some of that. And I imagine the disciples are thinking, maybe if you get rid of the crowd, Jesus, we can split this and just get by. But um, Jesus does something far better. For he takes the bread and the fish and divides it. And it says that everyone had their plenty. They had all that they could eat. In fact, there was some left over. Twelve baskets to be exact. One for each disciple. It's important when we talk about that story uh, to realize that the account says that Jesus fed 5,000 men. Um, during those times when a census was taken or when people were numbered, it would have been the men that were numbered. And so some scholars actually say that because these men most likely traveled with their families, there could have been up to 10,000 to 15,000 people present at the time of this miracle. And that's a lot of people. That's a really large crowd. Following this miracle, Jesus removes himself from the situation and... um, the disciples take the one boat and they get across or start their way across the sea and they run into to troubled waters and they see Jesus walking out to them. They receive him in the boat and are immediately transported to the other side of the lake. The people, they don't see this take place, but they do know that there was one boat. Jesus didn't get in it. And then that morning he wasn't there. So they assume that something would have taken place. These two miracles will be very important as we look at our text today. So be, keep those kind of in the back of your mind. Um, have them ready uh, because as we recall on them, they will give us clarity to what's going on. We actually open our story immediately following those two miracles. In verses 22 to 25, we see that the people are seeking Jesus. They knew that he was there and then they knew that he wasn't. Um, so they most likely guessed that he got out of there using miraculous methods. And this would have been exciting news for the crowd. You know, the last miracle turned out to their benefit. Jesus fed all of those people. And so if they assume he's performed another miracle, maybe they're thinking, hmm, I wonder what we can get out of this one. But we're already seeing a hint of that. And, and verse 23 tells us that other boats came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. We're starting to see why they're looking for Jesus. But let's think about that thought for just a moment longer. Why are they seeking Jesus? You know, we want to commend them for looking for Him, right? It is a good thing to seek the Lord. If you were here last week, Pastor Brian shared with us in the story of Mary and Martha that Mary chose the better portion, for she sought Jesus and sat down at his feet and listened to his teaching, while her sister Martha was busy about the housework and getting things ready. In fact, there's at least 85 different places in Scripture that were either commended for seeking Jesus We're told to seek Jesus or seek God, or we're told of the benefits of doing so. 
We could look at 1 Chronicles 16 and read, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continuously. Pastor Tony, just um, about a month ago, showed us in Isaiah 55 that we're to seek the Lord while He may be found. Or, if you'd rather, the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. And so we, on one hand, want to say, well, good, they're seeking Jesus. They're commanded to. It's good. Scripture tells us to do it. But still that lingering thought comes up. Why? Why are they seeking Jesus? What are they trying to gain from this? You know, it, it is possible to seek something for the wrong reason. We know this to be true in our own lives, if we're honest. Sometimes we may seek approval, fame, fortune, not for reasons that would glorify the Lord. Instead, we do so for what we can gain from them. You know, it's like needing a new car, and yeah, there's the practical decision to be made, um, something with good gas mileage and a high safety rating, but then there's the sports car that's much, much faster, and then we start, you know, rationalizing, well, if we get there quicker, that's safer, and um, because they're sports cars, they have a higher safety rating because they're more dangerous, but they're much safer, you know, and... Um, we, we do that, don't we? I'll, I'll use less gas if I get there quicker because that that's how that logic works. And we start rationalizing ourselves away. We know what we want and we find reasons to um, say that it's a good decision. Now, I am not saying that having a sports car is a bad thing. I'm not telling you not to pursue that because uh, they do have good safety ratings. But what I am saying, um, not that I've looked, but... Um, what I am saying is why we seek something matters. In fact, why we seek something often matters more importantly than the thing that we're seeking. I um, got a good laugh as I was back home in Mississippi this past week, and it reminded me that um, while in high school, I, I wore many hats. And one of the hats that I wore is I was the sound technician for the high school. And so I ran the soundboard and the lights for all of the performances, um, for everything that went on in our auditorium. I was the guy, and my brother was as well. And I got to see some interesting things and be a part of some interesting things. But there's one thing in particular, and it's a very southern practice, that I have a strong disdain for, and that's beauty pageants. <sighs> beauty pageants. Um, you see, in a beauty pageant... Um, and once again, I'm not uh, knocking them if they're sought for the right reason. But in the South in particular, you would have usually a, a girl come out on stage and a guy as her escort. Um, and you would walk them out. The guy would get a name recognition and then they would pass on to him. And then there was a paragraph for, for the ladies that would be read. That would include their name, uh, their parents, uh, their dream job, where they want to go to school, and all these things about them. Um, and then it would end with something very particular. The last thing said about them was their church attendance. And I, I find that interesting because back home, church attendance has to go on a resume. 
You don't get elected in office without the proper credentials. You don't get voted into any position. And you don't win beauty pageants unless you can prove you're from a solid church. This would lead to very funny moments like at one of the pageants as I'm listening to this girl's accolades being read and then it concludes with and she is a member of Enon Cumberland Presbyterian Church where she's active in the youth program and does all of these things. This gave me another chuckle because another hat that I wore was Enon Cumberland Youth uh, Pastor and I had never seen this girl before. (laughs) I didn't know who she was. But she had enough wisdom to know that having Enon on her resume was good and that it looked good, especially to the judges. You see, this is a wrong reason to seek something out. This is a wrong reason to seek the Lord. Asking what I can gain from it is not a good pursuit. It's not a good question. But there are other um, wrong ways to seek the Lord. And we can look at society to find another problem In fact, many people think that Jesus was simply a good teacher, that they reject his deity but say he gave a pretty good example. In fact, in liberal Christianity today, they see Jesus as the great teacher of moral truth and nothing else. It's less important to accept his divinity than to accept his teaching of love and acceptance of others. And of course, according to their logic, as time changes, we must change with them. Even the content of Jesus' message can be altered as long as you keep the example. This is another wrong way. We cannot seek Jesus simply for the example that he gave. So, how do we seek Jesus? Why do we seek Jesus? If these are wrong, then what is right? And I think that we're getting very close to the answer here in our text. But before we do, we have to realize, um, and we see this in verses 26 to 34, there's a lot of confusion. There's confusion about who Jesus is because there's confusion about what he came to do. In fact, Jesus gets right to the point. In verse 26, he tells the people, the only reason that you're here is you're filled with bread. You're filled with the bread that I provided. And I mean, I can't blame them. In a time where food was more valuable than it is today, where it was basically currency, in a time that it was highly sought after and it took a great deal of effort to obtain it, this was like turning a little bit of money into a lot of money. These people are well liked today, aren't they? I mean, one of my favorite examples of what society would do, and I like to think if uh, someone could perform this in today's time, how would we react? You can go to uh, the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original, not the sequel, where Willy Wonka, he invents a candy. It's called the Everlasting Gobstopper. And it's, to, it's supposed to revolutionize the candy industry. You see, um, it was made so that it would never get smaller. It would never run out of flavor. It would never lose its taste. No matter how long you ate the candy or chewed on the candy, it would, it would retain its value. And Willy Wonka had an alleged rival in the movie who wanted one really bad. And he wanted it so badly that he went to each of the children who received a golden ticket and he bribed them and said, I will pay you if you can bring me one of those. You see, this would revolutionize the candy industry. If you had one of those, then your cost would go down. You only need one. But then think of the, cost, the price that you could charge. Willy Wonka markets it, markets it toward poor children 
But if you didn't have a soft heart like Willy Wonka, you could charge whatever you wanted. Think about it. How great would that be to have something that people really wanted and to get to set the price? If you need another example, I'm currently reading through Michael Crichton's uh, Jurassic Park uh, novels and finding them much better than the movies. But in the movie, there's an example with the lawyer. And the lawyer, upon seeing the park and seeing how grand it is, um, who came to basically make sure that Mr. Hammond wasn't doing anything illegal or immoral, finally succumbs to temptation and says, Wow, we're going to make a fortune with this place. And Mr. Hammond, the park's creator, says, but I created it for the children. That's not what I had in mind. To which the lawyer replies, well, we'll have a coupon day or something. You see, if you have something that people want and it's great enough, you can charge whatever you'd like for it and people will pay it. If Jesus wanted to, he could have made a killing with this miracle. I mean, he could have made a a very lucrative business, couldn't he? I mean, he would have had crowd after crowd after crowd coming and listening to everything he had to say. He could have preached all day long, fed them in the evening, sent them home, found a next crowd the next day, and done it again and again and again. And then all he had to have done is take up an offering, and he would have never needed money again. You know, he would have been set for life. No one else was doing this, especially at this quantity. And I think the Jewish people realized this. They realized that Jesus was doing something different, that Jesus was doing something no one else was doing. But how does Jesus respond to this miracle? He leaves. Not only does he leave, he leaves quietly. I mean, he had a corner on the market. Either he's not good at business or he had something else in mind. We know the answer to that. Jesus definitely had something else in mind. And he tells the people, don't seek that which will fade. Don't seek that which will disappear. Instead, seek that which will last forever. He says that this can only come from God. And so in essence, he's saying, seek God. The bread that they were after would eventually perish they couldn't gather in limited supply, even if, did, even if Jesus did keep performing the miracle. And in fact, they quote, G, to, they quote to Jesus, well, our fathers in the Old Testament, they ate manna. But they should have kept reading the story. Because what happened in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, during the time of the Exodus, the people were allowed one day's portion of food. They could only gather enough for one day with the exception of the day before the Sabbath, which they had to gather too. Any more, and it would go bad. It would turn to ash. It would rot before them. It would become of no value. Why? To make sure they remember that you're only here because the Lord keeps you here. You're only being sustained because the Lord is sustaining you. You're only surviving because the Lord is allowing you to survive. And yet the Jewish people here want bread. And they should have thought, no, we don't need that. We need something that will last longer, that will be greater, that will have more value. So they start thinking this way just a little bit. In verse 28, they ask Jesus, well, what can we do? And Jesus says, do the work of God. And here... Uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul says is one of the most vulgar things stated in John's gospel. The people say then, 
will tell us what God wants us to do so that we can do it and get this bread. Did you hear that? They just told Jesus, Jesus, tell us what God wants us to do so we can do it and get this bread. They never once stop and ask, can I do it? Am I capable of it? Would I want to do it even if I knew what it was? They go beyond that and straight to, well, just give us the facts, Jesus. We'll get on that. And Jesus says something as equally as um, shocking. He says, believe in the one whom God has sent. Ultimately, he's saying, believe in me. I can imagine that the people were rather deflated at this. You know, imagine you had a boss and you walked in and this was your first day of work and you asked, what can I do to please you? And you're expecting those cliche answers. Work hard, do your best, spend company time wisely, build efficiently, be fair. And instead the boss says, listen to my word and believe it, for it comes from one who is greater than me. What would we do with that? How can you believe? How can you have faith? How can you trust? I can't see that. That's not tangible. This confuses the people. So they take it even further. They, they keep questioning and they keep pressing Jesus. Jesus, how do you make this statement? Where do you come up with this? I need a miracle. Uh, if I'm going to believe you, I need another miracle. I need to see it. I need your evidence. I need your resume. Let's get it out. Let's check it down. Let's see what's there. But remember what I asked you a moment ago. What just happened a day earlier? He performed two miracles right before them. In fact, the text says that the people in front of him were ones who ate their fill of the bread. They were the benefactors of the miracle that Jesus provided. And yet they're never satisfied. It's another and another and another. And I'd like to think that while they're asking him for a miracle, somebody in the back would, would say something like, yeah, and if you can make it bread, that would be great. You know, it's, they can't get this off their minds. They keep coming back again and again to this bread. You can tell by now very clearly what they want. And Jesus says, that he bread that the bread that they received did not come from Moses in the Old Testament. It came from God. He's setting the stage for his big reveal. The people want this bread. They're requesting this bread. They want to have bread that will last forever. And so they finally come to it. Jesus, we want this. Give it to us. Where can we find this? And Jesus doesn't give it to them. In fact, he tells them, it's right here in front of you. It's been here this whole time. I am the bread. The bread of life. We see this in verses 35 to 40. Jesus has been building up to this. He's been pushing and, and narrowing their, their focus to get them to see that He offers bread. Bread that is greater than that which comes from miracles. Bread that is greater than that which came in the Old Testament. This bread is eternal life. This bread is true bread. Imagine, if you will, of being told of a great treasure, something grand. 
And as the person is telling you, they, they go on and on about this new treasure that no one has ever seen and how expensive it is and how costly it is and how worthwhile it is. And then they turn from that to going and think about how good it would be for you. You could pay off your debts. You could finish that car payment. You could uh, finish your house payment. You could set your kids up for college. You could uh, retire early. And they go on and on and on about this great treasure. And then they take a backpack off of their back and unzip it and go, and here it is. It's all yours. How great a treasure that would be. That's essentially what Jesus is doing here. He's laying before them the greatest treasure that they've ever seen. And he's saying, it's at your feet. But I know some of you, you're like me. You would listen to the story and you would hear of this great treasure and you would nod along in, in a nice, respectable southern way and you would hear every word that they said and they would unzip the bag and lay it in front of you and you'd go, wait a minute. Well, if it's such a great treasure, why are you giving it away? How did you get it? Where did it come from? That's not really as brilliant as I thought it would be. It really doesn't shine. Are you sure it's real? It's probably not real. Uh, I, I think I'll pass. Something's not quite right here. You would start backing up and starting to doubt and starting to worry and starting to question, start to question. Just like the Jewish people did here. You see, Jesus addresses them directly because he knows that that's what's going on in their minds. He says in verse 36, You have seen me and yet you do not believe. They were skeptical. And John picks up on something very important. Jesus explains why they don't believe and tells us what the plan really is. Verses 37 to 40, let me remind you of what they say. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God has a plan. God has a good plan. God has a good plan that will be accomplished without fail, because it comes from God. And my friends, if you ever find yourself short on assurance and you find yourself doubting or worrying or questioning God, go back to text like this and know one very important truth. Either God will do what he says he's going to do because he's God or he's a liar. We should all throw it out and start doing something else with our time. It's really that or the other. God will either keep his word when Jesus says, I will do these things and I will save these people and I will do it because I am God. Or he's lying and we're wasting our time. I take great assurance in that because the emphasis is on what Christ does, not on my effort. Because there's a lot of times that I don't want to give a lot of effort there's a lot of times that I am weary and tired. There's a lot of times that I work and work and work and work only to see it fail. But what this text here says is that doesn't matter. What matters is what I, Christ, has done. 
we see in verses 41 to 51, as this is being explained to the people, they still don't get it. And yet we have more complaining and more explanation. They are taking things very literally at face value. Jesus says that I come from the Father, and then they start questioning, well, we know his father, his father's Joseph, his mother's Mary, we all know this. How can he say he comes from God? And what's this whole I'm the bread thing? This doesn't make any sense. You know, they were probably expecting some task or job. How do I receive eternal life? We'll do this or work hard or just like we said earlier. But instead, they're told to believe, to have faith, to trust in God. But isn't that a harder thing that he's asked them to do than work? Because how do you see belief? What does faith look like? And I want to to clarify that for you from this text, lest you run into the same trap that the Jewish people did. Here, John is laying out the plan of salvation. Jesus himself is saying what it looks like. He says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We have a clear statement from Jesus that God is the one who takes the first step toward us. We don't walk towards God until he brings us to him. This makes a lot of people uncomfortable in our day and time. This may make you a little uneasy. And thankfully, I don't have the time to address it much further. Um, I would be happy to talk to you um, anytime this week about that. But let me read what Jesus says. Let's continue his line of reasoning here. I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is making it clear that no one comes to the Father except through him. This is why the Jews did not believe. They weren't sent by the Father. This is why they only wanted more physical bread. He says eternal life comes from belief they had not believed. Do not miss this point. We're accepted by God by believing through faith in the Son. There is no other way. Well, you may be asking, well, what does this look like? If Jesus is living bread and Jesus provides everlasting life, and I'm told to believe, then how do I believe? Let me point you to the greatest explanation and example of this text. And it's already in front of you. In fact, I joked with Pastor Nathan early this morning to rightly apply this text. All that would have been needed was it to be read and then said, now let us take together communion or the Lord's Supper and I could sit back down. We take of the bread, which is what? Jesus' body broken for us. We take of the cup, which is his blood shed for the remission of sin. At the, right before it's taken, we always say, and as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim my death until I return. What does it mean to take of the bread of life? What does it mean to accept that which God has done for you? It's to accept that Christ died for you. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't do anything to gain it. Like the Jewish people, we often want something. Give us something to do, God. And God says, believe in me. 
You need something. You need to believe. You want something, then have faith. You can't work. You can't earn your way down to the table. Jesus' death brings life. Each week we get to see this. We get to see this again and again and again. We need to be reminded of this because how often do we turn our attention toward the stale bread that this life offers? Money, riches, fame, popularity, status, success. Whatever else society says, this will bring you satisfaction fades away. There's a cemetery, and I was corrected during the other service, it's over yonder, um, full of people that no one will remember and no one knows. A lot of us could go out there and we may not know a single name in that cemetery. The things of this world will fade. We will be forgotten. It's temporary bread. Seek the Lord. Seek the bread of life that will last forever. Seek Christ himself and be fed. Two weeks ago, I was blessed with the opportunity to lead the mission trip uh, to Omaha to work on two Indian reservations with the Omaha Indians and the Winnebago Indians. We took a team of 22 people, and it was a great trip, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and thank you for the opportunity to do so. But we saw severe poverty, poverty that I have not seen um, since I'd been back in Mississippi and seen some of their suburbs hurt a lot of hurt children and hurt people. Sadness, great sadness, a great sadness for a world that they know is broken. And other discouraging things, I could continue on listening, but I won't. Last week, I spent the last hours I'll spend with my grandfather on this earth as he faded away from kidney failure. I'm tired. I'm tired of this world's stale bread. I'm tired of pursuing that which will fade. You know, it's not all bad news, though, because there are ministers preaching to the Omaha and Winnebago Indians. There are missionaries, some sent from this church, preaching each and every week and sharing the bread that gives life. My grandfather knows the Lord, and as his body's wasting away, he soon will be with him. And that gives me comfort. That gives me hope. You know, communion is one of the few things when this world wears me down. And I honestly say, when I say I'm tired, 2,000 miles, 13 days, I'm tired. I look forward to this meal. I look forward to the rest that it brings. I look forward to the hope. I look forward to one day I'll eat it for the final time with Christ. Don't seek that which will fade. Seek Christ. Seek that which will last forever. Christ says, I am the bread of life. Those who feed on me will live with me in eternity. Let us pray. Father God, I pray for everyone here that they would know the rest that is found in you, that they would know the blessing that it is to take of this meal, not because of the meal itself, but what it points to. It points to your work. 
I thank you for your word in the book of John. I thank you for the declaration that you're the bread of life. I thank you for the opportunity to sing that today, to pray that together, to confess that before you, to worship you, to fellowship, to shake hands, to hear your word preached. Now, help us not to take all of that and hoard it up and then leave as if nothing has happened. May we leave this place believing that you have given us eternal life. May we leave this place knowing that you have given us the bread that will last forever and that we don't earn it. All we have to do is to seek the Lord. Give us the strength and boldness to point others. We're just beggars. We're beggars who have found the bread and we have the ability to let others know where they can find it too. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people. We ask that you bless all of these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.